What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Dylan LeClaire is the senior market analyst at UTXO Management. He also writes a newsletter with Bitcoin Magazine. In this conversation, we talk about Bitcoin, on-chain metrics. We talk about Bitcoin's price, the market structure, and what to expect in the coming weeks. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dylan, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by FTX US. FTX.US is the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets. You can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees either. FTX.US is also the only leading exchange that supports both Ethereum and Solana NFTs. Download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP to earn these free crypto on every trade over $10. The more you trade, the more you earn. Go download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP. Today's episode is brought to you by Brave. Brave Wallet is the first secure crypto wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. What's Web3? Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. Most wallets are browser extensions, a Web2 technology. That means the same old risks, app spoofing, phishing scams, and theft. Brave Wallet is different. Brave Wallet is the first secure wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. No extension required. With Brave Wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap assets, manage NFTs, even connect other wallets and dApps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions. It's time to switch to Brave Wallet. Download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. Again, go download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. Today's episode is sponsored by the Bitcoin 2022 conference. Bitcoin 2022 is the largest Bitcoin event in the world that takes place April 6th through the 9th in Miami Beach, Florida. All four days will be jam-packed with exclusive content, exciting announcements, and an incredible lineup of Bitcoin speakers, artists, and leaders. Day one is industry day for enterprising Bitcoiners who are looking to build a business or career within the ecosystem. Days two and three are general conference days featuring speakers like El Salvador President Nayib Bukele, CEOs like Michael Saylor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Maulers, Adam Back, and hundreds more. The conference caps off on the fourth day with the world's first and largest Bitcoin music festival, Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic, featuring artists K-Flay, Mo, Royal, and The Serpent, Apache, Asadi, and more. Stay tuned for the upcoming lineup announcement. Last year's conference sold out, and this year's is on pace to be three times larger, so make sure you grab your tickets before it's too late. Visit b.tc slash conference to learn more. Again, that's b.tc slash conference to learn more. Ticket prices increase on January 14th. Use promo code POMP for 10% off, and I will see you in Miami. All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. I'm here with two of my brothers, Joe and John. I'm also here with an honorary Pomp boy for the day. Dylan LeClaire is in studio. Let's go. 
We have all kinds of stuff that we got to get through. First is uh, Bitcoin Conference Week is this week, hence why Dylan is here. Uh, how big is the place? It's massive. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know the dimensions, but it's it's so much, it's so much bigger. Give us than the last floor plan. You, you didn't right? get a square footage read on the place yeah. yet. I mean, I did get like kind of a you know a backstage view the past couple of days, but it is huge. It's so. bigger than last year's venue. Yeah, by far, by okay. far. All right. So second then is, uh, are you two going to be there every day or just some of the days? The people. I don't know. There. I'm going for certain at uh, 9.30 tomorrow morning. Well, um, at 9.30. I'll be there this, at 9.15. Wanna, there's this guy that I know that's interviewing someone that I want to hear talk. Oh, you're an idiot. All right. <laughs> you're talking to Mike Novogratz, who I want to hear am. talk. All yeah. right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> we get to hear you all the time. What? Yeah, I, my point, uh, you got my, the my goal yesterday or tomorrow is not to provide any insights. It's just ask a couple of questions. That's what I said. You guys should come up with a great question and then I'll ask it. John and I are working on our entrance with Jack Mahler's. I talked to Jack yesterday. He didn't he, mention that to you? No, he definitely well, told me the exact <laughs> Jack's opposite. a low-key kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said, uh, do they want to be my mascot? They could dress up in costumes. Ooh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't really say that, but they yeah. got real quiet here real fast. Uh, Michael Saylor bought another $190 million worth of Bitcoin. What, what, just, what do you think about this? Highest conviction trade ever on Wall Street? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I, I kind of jokingly was, was saying that he should lay down some limit orders, but it seems like he's just going for the market buy, uh, which, you know, you got to respect. Super high conviction. It feels like uh, this money, which I don't think it was confirmed, but the $205 million loan that he got, $190 million of it, he's buying Bitcoin. The other $15 million is for expenses, uh, interest payments, whatever. So, like, I was trying to do the math. 25% LTV. Yep. He did it with $800 million or so. He has another $5 billion, give or take. I'm not a mathematician. But I think he could buy another billion dollars worth of Bitcoin if he posted the rest as collateral and only took 25% against it. Now, I don't think he'd post it all, but if he posts half, he posted 800, maybe he could get to like 3 billion. That means he could post another 2 billion and change. You're starting to talk about another $500 million of Bitcoin he could buy. Like that's like a pretty material, depending on what kind of leverage he wanted to actually take on. Yeah, I think- um, I'm pretty sure, and I should know the, the, the specifics better, but the, the junk bond issuance, the 6.25%, I believe that, um, he like formed a, a separate corporate entity and that, um, you know, I think like 20,000 or 10,000 Bitcoin, I, I should know the specifics, but, uh, that's already collateralized. So he can't pledge that again. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he is going leverage long, um, and it, and it is mark to market, but, um, I think, you know, I think that loan's not callable, uh, until the LTV is 50%. So he did it at 47 K. So unless Bitcoin goes to 23 K, he doesn't have to post any more collateral, um, relatively safe bet. But yeah, I mean, he is literally doing everything in the book, uh, to, to buy more Bitcoin. It is, it is quite impressive. What'd you guys think when you saw him do it? I mean, it's just another. It's, another. Not, it's not even a surprise anymore. Yeah, it's no. like what what took him so long? Like yeah. he got the loan three days ago. Why didn't he? When you buy see it? him get a two hundred million dollar loan, you know exactly what he's going to do. <laughs> <laughs> do, we, do we know the rate on that? It does is that known? Um, uh, if I remember correctly, and one of these guys can look it up, uh, but I think it was um, the LIBOR Plus 
I think like 3% maybe, something like that. Like there was some kind of floating rate mm. uh, plus, I think it was like a 3% um, or, or something. The, the fact that it's not the lowest financing costs available um, and it's completely over collateralized mark to market every, like every second, you know, globally liquid 24, seven, 365. That shows me we're pretty early because Correct. Bitcoin collateralized loans over collateralized loans. Yes, it's volatile. Um, but as it becomes more liquid, um, again, like 24, seven, 365, and it, and it isn't rehypothecated. Like that's one of the biggest problems in wall street. Like part of the reason of the great financial crisis was so bad. All of this collateral, like this collateral was, was pledged multiple times over. And with Bitcoin, you can just verify that, that there's no problem there. Um, that's to the network. Like it's an inherent to the network itself. So, uh, just the fact that, you know, it's even still LIBOR, you know, risk-free plus 300 basis points that it, it's pretty early, in, it, in my it's opinion. Floating rate plus three point seven percent. He yeah. posted eight hundred and twenty million dollars of Bitcoin and took the twenty five percent LTV um, loan. The uh, your point about Bitcoin being this like perfect collateral, it's actually most likely. Let me let me caveat and leave myself a little bit of room. It's most likely the single greatest piece of collateral that a Wall Street bank could lend against. Yep. Because of the structure in which they do it. Over collateralization, low LTVs, all this stuff. Your point about mark to market every second of the day, important. Two, high divisibility. So I don't have to sell the whole asset, I can sell pieces of it. Also, highly liquid market, really important as well. The rates on these are going to accelerate towards zero. The question is just how long does it take for all the banks to realize how good the collateral is? Because right now, Silvergate, it's like pretty much the only game in town at a, at a, uh, a bank, a chartered bank. You need the other folks to come in to actually drive the commoditization of the interest rate. Without the competition, then you don't get any commoditization, and Silvergate's going to keep taking their you know, 3.7% and, and be doing just fine there. It's kind of crazy. They're like they're the only game in town, though. You know, like the Silvergate's a Fed member bank, which is like, you know, that speaks for itself. But it's it's. I mean, it's not risk free because there's there's you know, I guess risks that are we can't see or you know aren't quantifiable. But you know, it's like it's way better than lending unsecured or a lot of the you know corporate debt we have out there that's collateralized by you know the, the equity or completely unsecured, right? And that's based on a credit rating. Like this changes the game. And so I think not only from like the lending side, but from the borrowing side, it's it's really interesting because the biggest game in town, the biggest driver, if you just look, if you break it down in equity markets over the last decade, has been share buybacks. They borrow money, buy back their shares. Sailor's borrowing money, buying Bitcoin, and then he's taking that Bitcoin, pledging it as collateral, and buying more Bitcoin. And I think you know history will look back at this and be like, hey, this is the fastest horse. He killed it. His his share price reflected that. And he's showing everybody what to do. And MicroStrategy is like relatively small. I mean, that's like, you know, what's five, some, it, five billion dollars? right now is 5.3 billion. They have 5.9 billion so, <laughs> on their yeah, balance sheet. So basically that. what they're doing is they're, get, they're essentially assigning negative value to the operating business, which doesn't make sense. <laughs> uh, or you can look at it as they're actually discounting the Bitcoin on the balance sheet. And GBTC obviously is obviously trading at a, a huge discount as well. But that five point nine billion of Bitcoin and your company's trading at five point three billion, like you don't have to be a genius here to just say, I'm literally buying something that is worth one dollar for less than one dollar. That's probably a pretty good purchase. Now, what happens from here in terms of the, the price of Bitcoin, whatever is up uh, for debate, but just in terms of like a value investor mindset, 
every value investor in the world would love to buy you know, a dollar's worth of assets for, you know, whatever it is, 90 cents. Yeah. And they do have liabilities, but essentially it's like, I mean, you know, they, they're spending off cash flow. It it still is a software business, but it's somewhat of a leveraged Bitcoin ETF. Like (laughs) there's obviously corporate risk and all of that. It's not, it's not an ETF product, but it's trading like beta Bitcoin, which is, you know, yeah, crazy. Uh, something that's related to this is uh, I just saw the news before we came out. So I don't haven't looked at all the details, but Stillmark, uh, which is the Bitcoin-focused venture fund, uh, they now are trying to raise a five hundred million dollar credit fund specifically to lend capital to Bitcoin companies. And mm-hmm. it's a little unclear in terms of what all of those uh, uh, mechanisms would look like. Is it just lending against Bitcoin? Is it lending for operating purposes? Is it more like venture debt? We, we got to figure all that out as uh, more news comes out. But I do think that uh, everything in the space has been equity-based for pretty much the entire uh, existence of Bitcoin. Now we're starting to get more credit market uh, exposure, whether it's for the companies or for the individuals with the assets. And that's really kind of started two, three years ago and now has exploded in popularity. Once the credit investors from Wall Street start to figure out how to play in this game, <coughs> like game on, yeah. right? They just have so much money and equity investors have other options, right? There's plenty of companies that went up more than crypto companies went up uh, over the last two years. There's plenty of other assets that went up, you know, more than Bitcoin even went up. In the credit markets though, like you're screwed right now. Yeah. And so if they can find, you know, attractive yield and attractive risk return, it feels like that's like a no brainer for them to, to go to. The, the interesting thing is like, I talked to some of the guys at Unchained Capital um, to try to like, and, and the other like kind of Bitcoin lending businesses to try to like wrap my head around um, why these rates were still so high. I was like, hey, like this Bitcoin collateralized lending business, it's in theory a no risk, a no loss business, right? At the very least, you, you break even, you liquidate, you liquidate the collateral, right? Um, and you, you come out break even. I mean, that's, and, and usually, you know, you always will get those interest payments, you come out on top. So why are these rates still 8%, 9%, 10%? And Unchained Capital, which is like you know, a pretty pretty base team of Bitcoiners over there, they, they told me, they're like, hey, we're a Bitcoin business. We're denominating things in Bitcoin. We're not going to be giving out 2 3% interest rates because we're trying to stack more sats. And so the interesting thing is, it's going to be you know, when, when the people that aren't thinking as a, you know, a Bitcoin unit of account, Bitcoin standard come in and are used to you know, lending at, Two percent, three percent. I mean, the junk bond market's at six percent, while inflation's at eight percent. Like the world's upside down in credit markets right now. When they come into this to this collateralized Bitcoin lending business, I think that's when it gets really interesting, and, and it'll probably accelerate this uh, this adoption and monetization process. Do any of your guys' uh, friends do any sort of uh, that hold crypto? Are they borrowing against it at all, John? No, not, none of my friends are borrowing against. It. I think they're all one. It's a little. Uh, they're skeptical, right? They don't know where the market's going to go. They don't want to over leverage. Um, and a lot of them are just unexperienced traders, right? They don't want to go go long on something or lever- leverage long on something that they don't know what's going to happen and they don't have the experience of ever getting uh, margin called. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, another thing that uh, has uh, recently transpired is that the country of Lebanon uh, is now stating that they are bankrupt. Like, game over, checkmate, we're bankrupt. Uh, the central bank... Um, is uh, is declaring bankruptcy, and uh, we've got some uh, some data and some information here. Uh, if we take a look at um, uh, what's going on, so this is from a Reuters article. We've got uh, 
uh, kind of a, a synopsis, if you will, of the situation. So they're in the third year of financial implosion caused by decades of corruption and bad policies. It's led the currency to crash in value by more than 90%, and most banks have locked people out of any of their hard currency accounts. So currency drops 90%, banks lock out their users, uh, and the World Bank estimates that Lebanon's economy is contracted by nearly 60% uh, in the two-year period between 2019 and 2021. Then our favorite economist, Steve Henke, has, uh, has a great tweet. says, uh, since basically the end of January, uh, their FX reserves have fallen by $837 million. Most of it can be attributed to selling USD reserves to try to prop up the Lebanese pound. Uh, and, you know, the government's incompetent in tanking Lebanon, uh, which he seems to yell about every government around the world. And then we've got two quotes here from the deputy prime minister of the Lebanese government. He says the losses will be distributed to the state, the uh, central bank, the banks, and depositors, and there's no specific percentage. Unfortunately, the state is bankrupt, as is Bank of Lebanon. We want to come out with a result. The loss occurred due to policies for decades, and if we did nothing, the loss would be much greater. Basically saying, hey, look, this would be way worse if we weren't doing what we were doing. Maybe. Um, <laughs> and then he continues and says, we're in the midst of negotiations with the International Monetary Fund, daily contact with the IMF. First time this large mission has come, and we've made great progress with the IMF negotiations. Like, are these people delusional that they actually are uh, not to call – like they're not the reason why uh, over the last three years basically 90 percent of the currency value has been eroded away. The economy's contracted 60 percent, and the average per, you know, person in Lebanon is just screwed. Yeah, I mean it's devastating. And then you'll see guys like Steve Hankey. They'll, they'll rag on the government. They'll rag on the central banks, and they'll say, what do we need? Better currency boards. Like we need, we need different people. You know, we need we need different puppets in charge. Um, kind of on this note, did you see the the former central bank uh, head of central bank of Canada uh, talk about inflation and, and monetary policy and Bitcoin? Uh, no, what was he saying? He was basically they were talking about like the record high inflation, and someone someone proposed um, they're like, what do you think about Bitcoin? Uh, because Pierre Polyev um, was saying Bitcoin is is an opt out of inflation. Yep. And essentially, the central bank, uh, the central banker was it was like the most Keynesian propaganda you've ever seen. And he I've was seen like, some pretty good stuff, was, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it was just next level, and it was it was honestly quite delusional. But the sad thing is, like, some people believe that he's like, no, inflation's good because with you know, say the gold standard, we had the we had a Great Depression, which was caused by the the lack of uh, inflatable money supply, and it was just like. Seeing it from someone that's, I guess, you know, I guess I would identify as being orange pilled, <laughs> or maybe you know, being a little bit out of the matrix in a way. Uh, it was just crazy to see. You know, it was like, oh yeah, prices are skyrocketing, but it's a good thing for you citizens. Uh, it would be bad if we had hard money. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I, I keep going back to is just like how much of this is pride, ego, like reputation stuff versus I fundamentally believe this is the solution. Right. And so if you're in the central bank and you're looking around the room, uh, maybe the best way to kind of visualize the challenge that they have is like I go in my I, I'm working on something like like manual labor and I'm, I'm assembling something. And I go in my toolbox and I need a tool, but there's only two tools. There's a hammer and there's a screwdriver. Right. And even if the tool I need is maybe like a pair of pliers or something. I just have two tools. So what do I do? I like grab the hammer. And I'm like, well, maybe I could like, you know, pop this out here if I hit it at the right end. Like, and everyone's in some point in their life figured out like, oh, I don't really have the tools necessary to do the job, but like maybe I can kind of just figure it out. 
And that's kind of feels like what the central banks are doing is they're in a situation and they're like, all right, there's a bad situation. Like, what should we do? And they look in their toolbox and it's like, you basically can manipulate interest rates. You can do some asset purchasing and you've got QE. Yep. Outside of that, like you can pray. <laughs> right? yeah. Like that's basically the only tools they have. And so when you look at the actual solutions, if you took it from a first principle standpoint, it's like, no, you got to go back and actually recreate what it means to have this currency. Yeah. But there's no social appetite for that, political appetite for that, uh, and possibly even an economic appetite because it would mean millions of people are going to get hurt in the process. But it feels like we're getting closer and closer to the point where some of these governments and central banks are going to have to say, I, I think it's time, right? I, I do think it's time. And like, I don't think them crashing the currency is intentional, right? But like, yeah, what's the solution? Yeah, I mean, I think in the long run, they're, they're going to try to tighten. And, and the funny, maybe not funny, funny is the wrong word. The interesting thing is they're using you know these monetary policy tools right now to com- combat inflation when really the inflation right now is, is being caused by a, a shortage of real goods right they're they're trying to tighten money to to make up for like they can they can ease monetary policy they can tighten monetary policy and deal with you know traditional demand driven inflation but right now it's all a supply side phenomenon with commodities oil energy skyrocketing and so they're trying to tighten monetary policy which at, at the same time you see credit markets rolling over, there's a potential for this to get really ugly. And I think over, you know, if we're looking farther than just the short to medium term, there is no political appetite for, for austerity, none, uh, in, in a global fiat standard. You know, the U.S. is the dollar, every other, every other country, or say like the EU, they have the euro. But there, there's no long-term appetite for austerity, which leads to what? Just perpetual monetary expansion. Like that's that's the end game here and that's why we you know we continue to just hammer that point home is because the money supply in this system in this credit based system has to increase forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they can raise the price of money a little bit marginally, but still I think real yields can't be positive. There's just no way with this much debt in the system, which is why we continue to just say like bitcoin 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 because give me an alternative besides that. Yeah. And ha- have you um have you read Ray Dalio's book uh Changing World Order? I've I've actually started to to get through that. I I watched like the the, the teaser like thirty minute uh, YouTube clip, which is like which is fantastic. Uh, it's like a summary of it. But yeah, I mean, I think agree on a lot of things. And Ray Dalio is an extremely smart man. I disagree with the conclusion, which is essentially like you know the CCP, you know the New World Order is is the yuan and all that. But I ha- I haven't got to the end yet. I'm listening to it on audiobook. It's very dense, right, in terms yeah. of just the amount of information. Uh, it's done very well. One of my critiques of the audiobook is that Ray was reading it at first, and then they rug pull you. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he's like, okay, due to time constraints, uh, so-and-so will now take over. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, dude. Like, And the other guy's like so much harder to listen to than Ray was. I don't know about like his voice was like much more, more – uh, 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 higher retention. Mm. And so I was like, first of all, you get rug pulled halfway through the <laughs> audiobook, Like that's bullshit. Um, but in it, he talks about these cycles, right? And, yeah. and if you've watched the 30, 45 minute video, whatever it is, uh, it, it's obvious that his point is like, look, we are transitioning between cycles. And I think that his point around there's wealth that's created. It ties in with power uh, and military might. As people get more comfortable, they take on more debt to finance this lifestyle, uh, and it happens at the individual and the nation state level, and then eventually they basically get overextended, 
And then there is some other uh, essentially more economically uh, durable uh, country that then comes along and replaces them. And this happens in these like 80 year cycles. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised, I think is, is kind of his point. And when you look at it, you're like, yeah, like yeah. that, that pretty much is like, that is a very strong argument. There are nuances, there's details that he misses. There's obviously, uh, uh, overgeneralizations, but when you look, when you listen to what he's saying and you look at the current situation, like, I think it's probably one of the most accurate takes I've seen on a longer timeline of like what's happening right now. Yeah. It's also, I think, and, and Ray refers to this a lot. It's not a coincidence that, that wars happen at these kind of huge inflection points in history. Um, and also like, like obviously like because of the war, but really like the monetary standards. And when you're looking at like say Bretton Woods or, you know, whether we've transitioned off of like gold standards, why is, why does it always happen at these, you know, huge debt bubble peaks? Why does a war just kind of come up? And, and there's obviously like a, a ton of factors there, um, that we're just kind of glossing over, but, um, you know, COVID, this Russia-Ukraine conflict. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're, we're seeing this, you know, when we're at record levels of debt around the world um, and you're seeing a, increasingly people say, hey, uh, is, is this kind of petrodollar monetary world order, is this coming to a close? Um, and a lot of people are kind of having to evaluate their stance on, you know, the staying power of the dollar as a world reserve currency. Yeah. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm curious what's going to be happening with interest rates, right? Because if they uh, start to rise too quickly, in my opinion, then we're going to have some trouble and then they're going to be in a really difficult position. Uh, but the the side effect of this all is like, what does this do for Bitcoin, right? So I, I think about that a lot, but I don't know if anyone has like the right answer because we ultimately don't know what the Fed is going to do because when they're faced with that decision, there's not really a good one. And oh. ultimately anything could happen from that. So uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating year or maybe even less, right? Six to 12 months at this point. And we're going to see how many times they end up raising it. But my, my guess would be that, would they say seven or eight? I don't, I don't know if we're going to get that high before they, they start running into some problems. John? I think this is a perfect storm for Bitcoin. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's everything that has happened over the last six to 12 months is a great thing for Bitcoin, whether it's inflation, the geopolitical issues, the Canadian trucker situation that happened earlier this year. Basically, a lot that has happened should be driving the adoption and driving people towards the use cases for Bitcoin. And I'd be shocked to see over the next six, 12 months um, as the Fed raises rates, if people whether they're going for liquidity or not, I would expect some people to put some of their portfolio into Bitcoin that don't already have it already. Yeah. What, um, just changing topics real quick, uh, for something a little bit more fun, Elon Musk, uh, obviously bought the 9.2% stake in Twitter, uh, for about $3 billion. Yesterday we were talking about this and I asked my brothers, it's Monday by Friday. Do we get to Friday and him still be a quote unquote passive investor. 14 hours later, 16 hours <laughs> later, he's now on the board of directors. Uh, and our point was like, Twitter should lean into this, like literally make him the chief meme officer, right? Like use yep. it from a, a marketing standpoint. Uh, and I think we said, what do we say? If, if you make him the chief meme officer, then have him sign every one of his tweets, chief meme officer <laughs> at Twitter, like just like le completely lean into this. Don't fight this guy. It seems like they're doing that. What's your read on Elon Twitter and like what this could mean for uh, for tech? Do we get an edit button? 
So do you want that button? I was going to yes. say, I have a side, uh, I have uh, I, the opposite view. I don't think they should add an edit button. I don't think they should either. Really? Yeah. I, I don't that. Think, Why the hell should you be allowed to change? What you, if, if you made a mistake, delete it and then repost it. I think like, you should have the edit button for about 20 minutes after you post it because that's normally when you 20 minutes is too long. Yeah, but you, you don't guys have Twitter blue? Yeah, you get yeah. like- We're like, you got like the little like loading button where you can read Someone made a good point the other day. They were like, my Twitter blue subscription ran out or whatever. Now I don't have to read tweets twice. To read tweets twice before posting i'm like yeah i guess but it's helpful sometimes <laughs> yeah. the, the uh, sometimes like ah, i probably shouldn't have sent that <laughs> <Yeah>. undo <laughs> i i think that the edit button should be uh something people pay for if i'm twitter like if everyone yeah. wants the edit button have people pay for it yeah right so like how much would you pay to get an edit button if you really want it you'll probably pay five bucks a month You'd be surprised how many people would be like, I don't need an edit button. Of actually. course. But like that, but that's the whole thing. Is like it, it's not a technical challenge to create an edit button, right? It's obviously a product decision. And so I think as they try to move from Twitter as we know it today, where they tell us what features you get, how your feed works, whatever, if they want to transition it to uh, you kind of choose your own adventure, like just put a paywall in front. And guess what? They came out with Twitter Blue. Guess what my ass did? I pulled out my credit card and I gave them the $2.99 a month. And I said, cool, I can upload 10-minute videos on desktop. I get a, a undo feature on the tweet. And they had a bunch of other nonsense in there that I didn't care about. Like, what color the icon is on my phone? I'm not paying for that. What I'm paying for is the functionality that I want. But I think that that's the key to it. And with their goal, I think it's by the end of 2023, they want to get to 315 million daily active users. Be massive, Right. How much could they get? If you get 1% of those people, it's 3 million people paying three, four, five, ten dollars $10, whatever a month. Like that's a real business. Yeah. And so it feels like that's kind of where they're going. But I do think that Elon, uh, do you think it was planned? Like, do you think that he thought about this or do you think he literally was like last week? He was like, I wonder if people, yeah, like how, how long did it go from, I have an idea to, I own $3 billion of Twitter <laughs> stock. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to secure that large of a position. Like, yeah. I mean, he must have had, some, you know, like a, a team do it. You know, like I can log into Robinhood and buy a hundred <laughs> bucks of Twitter stock. You can't go buy three billion dollars of Twitter without nine point two percent of the company. Yeah, like that's a big part of the, the that free float. Like he was probably in the market for I don't know days, weeks. I mean, and when, so when he ran the original, uh, when he ran the original poll. I'm assuming that's when it all started. Yeah. Right. When he and then he tweeted, he's like, you know, vote carefully. This will have consequences. And we're like, all right, Elon. And then he's like, no, literally, I'm now the largest shareholder on Twitter. <laughs> Elon, I think Elon's the definition of fuck you money. Like, yeah. just just having that much capital. How much cash do you we think that Elon Musk has just sitting around? How much? How much Twitter did he? He, he sold the top of Twitter uh, of Tesla. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. He sold the top. What, but he paid eleven billion in taxes. taxes. So, what do we know? How much he sold total? If he uh, if he paid I mean, eleven billion up, in taxes, let's just say tax rates forty percent. He sold uh, all his houses too. That that gave him some cash. Not three billion, but <laughs> yeah. The uh, uh, did you ever hear uh, Grimes? What what uh, what she said no. uh, about living with him or something? No. She gave this interview, and to be honest, it made me respect the shit out of her. Because she said she uh, in the interview, it's the one where she's like, "Oh yeah, by the way, don't like ignore that baby. That's just the secret baby I have with Elon." But in it, she said something like, uh, "Yeah, the bro, like the like uh, bro just lives like he's poor, or like so like so." And they're like, "What?" She's like, "Yeah, bro's the richest dude in the world and uh, lives in like you know a five thousand dollar house, like whatever she said." <laughs> and she kept calling him bro. <laughs> And I was like, all right, this is like a weird relationship. But they were, she was basically talking about like, 
I, I couldn't live like that anymore. Mm. And so I think that he like legitimately has like a unique viewpoint on the world. He obviously doesn't care that much about material things, but to do this, like how much of this is marketing a distraction from something going on at Tesla versus just like, he's like sitting up at night. He's like, huh, I would, you know, I think we should change Twitter. And he goes, I, I don't know what the answer is, but it just feels very different than uh, a traditional activist investor. I don't think he cares about the, you know, the, re- like the, the share price or, you know, I don't think he's investing it to increase his capital. Like Elon said multiple times, he's like, I'm not an investor. The only share, the only like stock I own is, is Tesla and, and SpaceX. Um, and so I think he's buying Twitter because, you know, he's, he said multiple times he cares about free speech and all of this. Um, and it, he wants to hopefully transforms it into, into more of like kind of a, a neutral platform. And obviously they're a business, they're going to try to monetize it, but uh, instead of you know the increasing amount of censorship we've seen, uh, that trend hopefully that kind of there's an inflection point there with Elon. Yeah, I did see uh, Trung, uh, who was at the hustle but left. One uh, of the you know local meme gods on the internet. Uh, he said, "Scoop, Jeff Bezos just bought nine point three percent of Twitter," <laughs> <laughs> which does feel like uh, people will uh, 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 obviously now this is going to ch- change the attention. Here's my call: is Remember when Chamath did the first SPAC and it literally set off like a chain reaction and all these people ran and did SPACs and they were like, this is an amazing you know, invention, even though SPAC's been around for a long time. If Elon is even partially successful in creating change at Twitter, you're going to see a bunch of successful founders start to uh, uh, position themselves as like modern day activist investors. We're looking back, well, if Elon could do that, like I don't need to do it at Twitter, but like look at this other company. And they're all going to start buying up stakes in businesses. And it's going to be this like very mimetic response. If the richest man in the world does it, like I'm not the richest, but like I'm rich, <laughs> right? Let me go do it at a different company. Yeah. Like it's kind of similar to like what GameStop, what, what are they about? Like a gold miner or something? Um, and, and it was like the shares went, went parabolic after that. It's like, it's like the meme economy, you know, like Twitter shares skyrocketed. I don't know. Has it retraced since then? Um, no, as of like two hours ago, it was up 33% <laughs> since Friday. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sending a message, right? The, would you judge him if he sold the Twitter stock? Like if he came out and he sold half the position now and he was like, thanks for the half billion dollars guys. <laughs> I mean, that'd be boss, but I don't think that's what he's in it for. But no, I, I don't think so either. But like, how does he have time to do this? He should, he should sell 75%. Then it's all house money after that. <laughs> He's like, I get my original investment back. I got a billion dollars. <laughs> do you, you want to know what would, great. Do you want to know what just would send the, the Tesla, like the TSL, was it TSLAQ, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all those guys, all the shorts, all the Elon haters in just an absolute <laughs> frenzy is explained that he basically is pursuing the, uh, the meme stock portfolio and he's outperforming all of them he bought bitcoin he now went and aped into twitter (laughs) right like if you think about like what he's actually doing is he's not buying anything that uh kind of the value investors the 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 (laughs) virtue signaling like you know we we buy value he's not doing anything he's buying the exact opposite he's up huge on the bitcoin position he bought it at like thirty three thousand. we're at forty seven thousand now and he took what a hundred million dollars off the table Right. So there he's already up very big Twitter. He's up 30% in like a week. So you started to look at it. You're like, obviously he has ingredients that other investors in the market don't have in terms of his reputation and and kind of following all that. But like, if he was an investor, even though he says he's not like, he probably could be one of the best investors in the world. Is Twitter going to buy Bitcoin? 
Ooh. I'm going to say that uh, odds increased, but still unlikely in the short term. I mean, yeah. it would be wild if they don't buy Bitcoin under Jack Dorsey and then Elon comes in and they buy Bitcoin. Does, is Elon Musk the, uh, the shadow CEO now? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, well, again, I think they should play into it. But Funny story. I lost my Twitter check mark the day that Jack resigned as CEO. Really? Yes. Did you get it back? No. Hey, Hey, Brock, hey. what's going on? Hey. Elon. Well, Elon. Yeah. Elon, what's going on? Yeah, we, we yeah. just go skip over. We're going to skip over the it's like CEO Andy now. Jassy yeah, and Jeff Bezos. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Like, we we don't talk guys? to Andy Jassy on this show. We, we just ignore him. We go right to Bezos. Bezos <laughs> still runs Amazon, in our opinion. We go, Bezos, 100%. make it happen. He, you know, he, he has more time on his hands now because he's not, he didn't have direct reports. Like, he, he's chill. the chairman. His word goes. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's Andy Jassy's boss. We want to talk yeah. to the boss. So the question now is, does that mean Elon Musk is the boss of Twitter? And if so, then we need to appeal to Elon, mm. not to uh, Twitter CEO. Elon, if you're watching this, help a man out. <laughs> does Elon carry more weight than, I would say, almost any investor in the world when he gets behind a company like this? Like if Bill, or Bill Ackman or Carl Icahn, like they come out and they say, hey, we bought $3 billion at Tesla. We're going in on it. Like we were very bullish yeah, on it. I, I tweeted it yesterday. Carl Icahn. I love Carl Icahn. I think that he is just like, a special breed of a time in investing where just like he pioneered a whole different type of investing. Carl Icahn goes to sleep at night dreaming <laughs> to have one-tenth of the, the effectiveness on something like this that Elon Musk does because Carl Icahn doesn't have the notoriety, the audience, like all these different things. Now, with the Wall Street crowd, nobody other than Bill Ackman on CNBC years ago, is playing with, with Carl Icahn. <laughs> He's just not playing the game. Like, if you see Carl Icahn on the other side of the trade, you're like, I'm going hey, to I'm I'm step down here. Like, you know, just go ahead, do your thing. Elon Musk could do anything in finance and has a very high probability of being successful simply because people assign him as a winner. So, like, one of my favorite uh, distressed uh, investors in the world, do you guys know about uh, Elliott Management? They, they're they a big, yeah. they're a majority shareholder of, of Twitter, no? They are. Um, I think it's Elliott. Uh, yeah, Elliott Management. <laughs> this is a crazy story. Elliott Management uh, and Paul Singer, uh, who, who runs it, at one point, this is what year? Uh, 2016, Elliott Management fought for 15 years with Argentina to get paid back billions of dollars in debt payments that they'd never received. So this was the first time in history a hedge fund took on a sovereign nation. Wow. And Paul Singer said, we own your debt. We're not absolving shit. <laughs> Pay us our money. And the country was like, you're a dumb hedge fund. We're a country. We're not paying. Overgeneralized. In order to collect the debt, this is from the Washington Post. I'm not making this in a conspiracy theory. This isn't Reddit. Alex Jones didn't say this shit. The Washington <laughs> Post, which is the, the mainstream conspiracy theory, said <laughs> that they tried to take the money deposited by Argentina, central bank, 
in U.S. and Europe bank accounts. That was the first thing they tried to do. So what the United States just did to Russia, central bank reserves, <laughs> Elliott Management in 2016 tried to do to Argentina. Because wow. <laughs> they said, you owe us money, you didn't get pay us, and so instead what we're going to do is we're going to take your central bank reserves and the banks in U.S. and Europe, and U.S. and European law was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we're going to play a game where we're going to let hedge funds take on nation states and seize assets. That seems like a little out of bounds. So then they tried to seize two satellite launch contracts between Argentina and SpaceX. And they said, those are our contracts now. Attempted, not necessarily successful. But this all had come after in 2012, Elliot, remember, they're doing this for almost 15 years. They were fighting with Argentina trying to get this money. The Argentinian Navy had a three-masted tall ship that was pulled into a port in Ghana. Has, the ship was so big, it had 250 crew members on board. They claimed that the ship was only worth a fraction of what the hedge fund said Argentina owed them. 100 meter ship. And Elliott management persuaded a Ghanaian court to seize the vessel. <laughs> <laughs> so that they could then reclaim it. And they were using a Ghanaian court that now had possession of an Argentinian ship as a poker chip to try to get paid back from a 15 year debt that they were going after. That's pretty base. Probably one of the craziest stories in finance to ever play out is Elliott management versus the country of Argentina. <laughs> but Argentina, uh, Argentina eventually in 2016, they agreed to settle with the hedge fund. So all this nonsense that was going on, they, they finally agreed to settle. Elliott Management walked away with $2.4 billion for their bonds. The face value was $617 million, and they'd been purchased for $117 million. Wow. So they spent $117 million. They walked away with $2.4 billion, but it took them a decade, and they literally were going to try to seize the country's central bank reserves. They took over a fucking ship. In Ghana, absolutely nuts story. And so when I start to think about, like, I'm just going to post this. When you see this, uh, pull this up real quick, Matt. When you see this photo of the ship, you're like, what dude in New York City is sitting there being like, yo, the fucking ship is at port. <laughs> Let's go get that. Elliott Management has 480 employees. The country of Argentina has almost 46 million. <laughs> <laughs> And so when you start to think about this, Argentina, uh, Argentina had defaulted on $80 billion of debt. Most of the country's creditors, 93%, agreed to walk away with just 30% of what they were owed. And Elliott Management basically, they said, we're not, we're not walking away. <laughs> we're not taking no for an answer. I mean, it, it's crazy. But if you think about now in context, Elliott Management was trying to freeze the central bank reserves of a, of a sovereign nation 10 years ago. And now... The United States is doing it to other countries. That's There's the good. ship. <laughs> wow.
different game getting played in uh, in hedge fund versus sovereign nation land. Dude, what do you think? Some guy ran in the conference room and was like, they have a ship going near Ghana. We can yes. contact them right now. <laughs> I, I, I promise you what was happening was they were, Paul Singer was probably sitting there saying, I'm not going to back down. Yeah. And if you watch some interviews with him, like this dude's a gangster. He he literally, I think that if you were like, hey, you get 80, you get your $80 billion of a, a debt paid, but you have to go and do a, uh, a 12 noon draw at the OK Corral, he'd be like, what are the odds that uh, I get shot before I can shoot hit? Like, like that's the type of guy he is, right? And so I absolutely think what they probably did was they mapped every single asset the country had, and they were trying to figure out what assets can we seize? <laughs> seize. Not like, oh, we know where it is. Can we seize to use as a chip in negotiations with this country? And then eventually they were, somebody was probably like, Yo, Ghana probably is going to, you know, we probably could do some stuff in Ghana that's going to be cool with us getting this ship. The shareholder, but, the shareholder letter was probably hilarious. They're like, yeah, we got the ship. <laughs> ship secured. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's just uh, absolutely nuts. And by the way, of course, this isn't the only country that he's uh, tussled with. Mm. In the Washington Post article, they say uh, the billionaire Republican fundraiser, which of course is like uh, exactly what you would expect from mainstream media. Uh, how about just financier? Also developed a taste for tangling with foreign governments, including Peru, Congo, over the value of government bonds. Wow. So I just like, man. Uh, and the hedge funds tactics in Argentina case drew international attention. The country launched its own campaign against what it calls the vultures and financial terrorists. <laughs> like, all right, hold on a second here. So you sold them debt. You don't want to pay them, but they're the bad guys. <laughs> all they're saying is pay me the money. You promised me you're going to pay me. And so the country that this was the part I remember when I first heard about the country took out full page ads in the Washington post and other publications and found some supporters on Capitol Hill. <laughs> they argued that giving the hedge fund what they wanted would expose it to a cascade of claims that it could not afford to pay. So you're bankrupt. Basically. Right? I don't know. It's it, it's just, uh, it's crazy to think about how uh, countries now in some way are being like brought down to the level of other hedge funds or individuals. Right? Yeah. It's been going on for a decade, but like, seems to be happening. You like that story? Yeah, that was cool. I'm surprised they didn't actually seize the assets in foreign countries. Dylan, you got any like, wild predictions around Bitcoin that like maybe super far-fetched, but if they came true, you're thinking about them already? Um, I mean, I think I've, I've probably said most of, of the, the crazy expectations I have on this show before, but I mean, I definitely think in this decade we're going to see central banks, whether they announce it or not, just printing money to buy Bitcoin in the same way they print money to, to monetize debt. Um, you know, like, or like, for instance, like the Swiss central bank prints, prints francs, buys dollars, buys U.S. equities. Prince, you know, just to, to devalue their currency makes their, their exports more attractive and they get dollar-denominated assets. Like the Swiss National Bank owns Tesla stock. They own Apple stock. You know, so I guess they already kind of own in a way, kind of they have some Bitcoin exposure, but like they're totally, I, I totally believe, and this is still somewhat of like an outlandish prediction in like mainstream circles uh, and legacy finance, but yeah, I, I totally think that's coming. Um, and I definitely not priced in <laughs> at a trillion dollar asset class. What, what would happen if that occurred? Like, like what happens to price? How does it play? I out? mean, for, for them to even secure a, a meaningful allocation, price is going to have to get bid like crazy. But when that's announced, I, to I, what, like a million dollars more or less. Uh, I mean, if a, if a, you know, legit, like 
G7 central bank or you know ECB, Fed, BOJ. I don't think that's that's here yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars, high six figures, uh, a million eventually, and then it's like, what's the purchasing power? What's the value of a, a dollar or a fiat currency at that point? Because um, you're, I mean, if never mind Bitcoin, like price price your your money and energy, right? That I mean, that's really like what what it all comes down to is is what's your purchasing power for a barrel of oil, right? Um, and like something like gold or over the long term really can kind of maintain that. But I think Bitcoin is is still completely underpriced in terms of energy. And, and we focus on, like I talk all the time, like the marginal the marginal production costs of Bitcoin in energy terms or really anything. The marginal production cost of Satoshis is programmatically designed to increase. Did you see Nick Carter going after some energy FUD last night? On I mean, Twitter? there's no one better than than Nick <laughs> in that regard. Just just destroying fudsters and, and academics. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's he's a champ in that regard. I uh, I just loved that he was like, "Yes, I have a philosophy degree, <laughs> and I know more about energy than you do." PhD or like what? <laughs> Bro, he changed his name on Twitter. I'm looking right now to Nick No Credentials Carter. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I saw someone in the comments was like, uh, you know when the letters start coming out after your name, you're already lost the argument. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if you're pulling out the uh, the letters of the credentials that you have, you're you're done. No, the, what, what did the guy say? He's like, I have a P I have like a master's and a PhD in energy and whatever. And then Nick went and like, of course, did the research. And he's like, dude, you talk about water resources. <laughs> like, what do you know about fucking energy? Right. And and the other piece of it too is uh we, we've talked a number of times on this show about the idea that um uh, Bitcoin needs better critics, but uh, one of the keys to it is not just better critics, but better critics who also have better arguments. So, like the quality of the people who end up yelling and screaming about Bitcoin is like shaky at best, <laughs> and most of the intelligent people who even are skeptic, their arguments are just higher quality. And so, it's like I wish those people were more vocal. This is a tough question. Who is who is the most informed or Best, and this is best is a very subjective term. Who's the best Bitcoin skeptic? Brad Sherman. Okay, that's fair. That's good. That's you know why? Because he's he doesn't understand anything about today till uh, five years from now. He understands the hundred year game. Yeah, that's why. About Peter Schiff. uh, Peter is uh, he's a nice guy. Peter Satoshi. (laughs) Yeah, didn't you see? He he revealed it. Yeah. Pete, Peter and Craig Wright are going to have to fight it out. What was to the date you revealed? Uh, <laughs> oh, April Fools! That was yeah, the date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah I, I, I'm joking about Brad Sherman, obviously, but um, it, I think it's a very good question. I don't know, who would you say? Um, I think there's there's some like directionally correct. I don't even I don't even have really anyone in particular, but the people that that say Bitcoin is somewhat of like a you know, a risk on high beta asset that, you know, are, I actually like respect a lot of people in the legacy, in the legacy financial system and their views on things. Um, but they completely disregard Bitcoin and say it's, you know, it's a mania that's riding on the, you know, high liquidity tide of, of monetary debasement and, and central bank quantitative easing. And I think that's somewhat accurate, but at the, at the same time, they're missing the big picture, which is that for, you know, millions of people, and I think soon to be billions of people, it's not, it's not a speculative risk on asset like Tesla or an equity. It's it's a monetary asset. Um, so yeah, it, it trades. It trades like you know. I think some of the correlations with meme stocks, like someone ran the numbers. It was 
like over the last two years, it's like pretty crazy. Like, you know, when, when GME and Tesla go up, Bitcoin has a positive day as well. Um, so in that, in that sense, like some of those skeptics who actually like really respect their opinion on the legacy system are, are right just, just by looking at numbers, but mm-hmm. there's more to it than that, in my opinion. And so that's where obviously we come to different conclusions. Yeah. Does I, it still shock you how many people, uh, just don't believe in the asset at all? Uh, doesn't shock me. I mean, it gets me excited because it's like, okay, we're still we're still pretty early here. Um, I mean, obviously, forty five k or whatever it is, billion dollar, uh, trillion dollars close to be uh, maybe I think nine hundred billion dollar market cap. Thirteen years in, it's like, oh, it's pretty late. But in the reality, you see so many like well informed, really smart people completely dismiss it, and you're like, okay, yeah, we have some time. All right, we got other things we got to do. But before we let you go, I have two questions. What is, you've now been doing Bitcoin for a year now, full time? Yep. All right. What is the single best memory you have? Mm. And what do you think is the biggest surprise after working on Bitcoin full time in the last year? Uh, that's a, those are great questions. Uh, and I haven't, haven't really thought of that. My best memory, um, I don't think anything in particular. I think just the amount of awesome people I've met, um, first, like mostly online and then, um, you know, meeting people in, in the meat space, just like, like I am here today. Um, it's pretty awesome. Uh, I have a ton of, ton of awesome memories. And in terms of surprises, uh, that was the second question, right? Biggest surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just think, uh, the timelines kind of accelerating. I, in, in 2020 and 2019, when I was really becoming orange pilled per se, um, a lot of this stuff was, was hypothetical. Uh, and now it's, you know, I can only imagine being in the space for, you know, five, 10 years, but, uh, it's coming to fruition faster than I thought. And, uh, you know, despite all that, it still seems like we're, we're quite early. So kind of skirted around the question there, but, um, just, you know, met a lot of awesome people and, and like, excited for the future. I think that's fair. Do you two have any last questions? No. Are, Thanks for are, going on, Dylan. Are you going to, uh, come party with us this week? Yeah. I, can you hook me up with a SoFi after party ticket? <laughs> Hmm. John's in charge. Yes, let's go. Anyone who wants SoFi after party tickets, contact John. Hit me up. <laughs> see if you can get them. <laughs> Only a few. There's few. <laughs> they got to be following yeah. you, right? Got to be following me. If you, if you, you gotta, tip him, then yeah. maybe. No, 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 no bribes. Do not send me money because I will keep it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we can get you a ticket. Perfect. Uh, we have no other ones. That was literally the last one, everyone. So sorry that uh, anybody else. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so if you're uh, mad that you didn't get a ticket, hit up Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan is flipping tickets. They're not NFTs. So there he is uh, on Twitter. Almost 150,000. Let's go. The rise, the rise. All right, my friend. Appreciate it. I'll see you at the conference. And uh sounds like that at the after party as well. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, right. See you, buddy. Peace. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more. And I'll meet you guys for the next episode.